Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 107, and my guest this week is Cody Votolato. Cody's played in bands like the Blood Brothers, Waxwing, Jaguar Love, Head Wound City, and most recently, he is fronting a band called J.R. Slayer, which uh, just put out a brand new EP. It's called Not Rotten. It was produced and it's uh, released by Will Yip on Will Yip's label, uh, Memory Music. Um, also, some fun side information. Ben from Tiger Shaw played drums on this recording. Uh, so definitely check out that EP. It's called Not Rotten. The band is J.R. Slayer. And... Uh, I'm just so excited that Cody's doing this. He's such a sweet guy. I've been lucky enough to call him a friend for a while now. And uh, this conversation is a lot of fun. Uh, we get into all, all things his musical career. Before we get there, though, I want to remind you, especially if you're new, that there is a bonus episode available right now where Cody answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can hear that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon you can subscribe for as little as $3 a month to hear that bonus episode, plus a bonus episode for just about every single interview I've done for the last over a year, for sure. And uh, you also get bonus radio episodes. There's a Discord channel. Uh, you get, I don't know, there's tons of stuff. Just go go check it out. It's patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Most of all, it helps support the show, and it means the world to me, truthfully. Uh, all right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Cody Votolato. What's up, Cody? It's so nice to see you. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm doing all right. We uh, we just got coffee the other day, and uh, you're, you're one of those um, musician friends that... Uh, I see often because you're like me where you'll just you'll just pop up at a show and it's just like, hell yeah. Now I get to see yeah. that guy. Yeah, we tend to run into each other <laughs> pretty often. I know you just went to that show the other night. How was how was it, by the way? You went and saw Alkaline Trio and Coheed. Was that? Cool? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were they were both great. Um, hadn't seen Coheed in a very long time, but Travis in, invited my wife and I out and we went and hung out with him and I met his son and he was so sweet and Alkaline Trio was awesome. And I, I was amazed at the Coheed 
just the presentation of their show. They had this crazy inflatable devil, like on stage. <laughs> it was just like it, it, all these crazy like LED uh, graphics, and they're amazing. It's cool to see a band have that kind of production because you, you know, this is no, this is certainly not a not a any sort of a takedown of of Coheed, but it's like they're obviously not a big radio rock current big radio rock band or something like mm-hmm. that, right? But they're also not a small a small band playing smaller clubs. So it's like for a band to have production at that, you know, in, in the in the size that they are is just awesome yeah. to see. I mean, I remember seeing them with you guys, with Blood Brothers, you know, in the in like the mid 2000, whatever that was, like maybe like 2006, yeah. six, five, yeah. six or something. It was, it was one of the last Blood Brothers tours that we ever did was was supporting them. And it was Me Without You. And I believe Dredge was on that. And totally. You know, and the, they, that was a that was a venue club show. And, you know, yeah, they had a they had like a guillotine on stage or something like that. I remember <laughs> just being like, that's insane. They've they've always just had a vision. Uh, yeah. Which, which I think is really cool. And and they're dedicated to it. And you know, that yeah, dude, cool Cla- that dude Claudio just has a, a wild mind, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's funny when you and I were talking the other day, uh, my brain had a had the, uh, the the total slip where I was like, I had for some reason been like, oh, yeah, no, Blood Brothers, San Diego band. And I was like, what the? <laughs> then I, yeah. seriously, the rest of the day, it haunted me. I was like, why the fuck? Like, I know they're a Seattle band. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, so it was really fun doing uh, doing all the research that I do before I talk before I talk to someone who's especially a friend, too, and sort of yeah. uh, watch all the through lines and stuff like that. So um, the town you're from, it's Redmond, Washington. Yeah. So I initially was born in Texas and I lived lived in a very rural part of Texas until I was about 10 years old. And uh, we moved to Seattle uh, when my my mom remarried and my stepfather worked for Boeing as a mechanical engineer and, you know, took all the hillbillies up to Seattle and to a suburb of out there called Bothell. And I lived there for a few years and then we moved to Redmond, uh, which is you know, where we stay. Is it like a suburb of Seattle? Yeah. It's, it's called the East side. It's about 15, 20 minutes across the water. Sure. Um, what part of a, you said a rural part of Texas, like, is it West Texas? Like what, where, where is it actually located? About two hours South of Dallas. Um, oh, okay. A, so kind of in that in between Dallas and Austin yeah, near, near Waco. Um, it's a town called Frost, Texas. There's about 400 people that live there still. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, very, very, very small. We what do you remember? A, what do you remember from growing uh, up there? Well, we we lived in a trailer house that basically my parents built around. Like, if, I think they just like took a wall off or something and built house around it because my mom, when her mother died, they inherited some acres of land like out there, and they threw their trailer on it and then built around it, and then we lived there. And, you know, dogs, chickens, horses. What was the school situation like? Uh, K through 12. So the graduating class would would have, my graduating class would have been like 10 people. Yeah. Um, So it it was pretty crazy. A very, very weird upbringing. Um, And you're the younger brother, right? Yeah, I'm the youngest. Um, Yeah, my father was, you know, he was in a biker gang and a president in the eighties and just sort of in that kind of like rough, rough kind of what you would imagine that being like lifestyle. Um, Yeah. You know, not, 
not a lot of people leave. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing that we, we left. I, I remember a tornado at a T-ball game and it, and it got canceled because of weather. And on the way home, we came home to our, our little trailer house hybrid and the roof had been destroyed because a tornado oh my God. ripped through it. Yeah, it was a very, very scary situation. I was yes. pretty young. I'm, I mean, I was probably seven or something, you know, still playing T-ball. Um, sure. Was, uh, so is your pop still out there? Yeah, he, he actually lives in the same house. They, they rebuilt the roof and he's, he's never left. So wow. He's, he's still there. I've been there a few times, you know, after we left, I, I didn't go back for a very long time. Not until I was in my early twenties, did I go back there and kind of connect with him. And I spent a lot of my life sort of trying not to be like him and take my life in a different direction. And I didn't, you know, I never had like forgiveness issues. It was just so long. I hadn't even thought about it. And then one time my sister, I was on tour with the blood brothers and my, I got an email from my sister that was like, Hey, we should, uh, go, go out and see dad. What do you think? And I was just like, sure, that, that sounds fun. So we rented a car. It was definitely a a very like big moment in my life because, you know, I sort of had these memories and vision of, of him and who he was and, you know, what he, what he meant to us. And, you know, for a long time, it was something that just didn't really go there. And then I started thinking like, what if, what if this guy passes away one day and I never, never talk to him or never meet him. And my life is so cool. Like, you know, I can't have, you know, I can't be upset because of the trajectory of our, of all of our lives based off of, you know, the way that, that him and my mom's life went, sent us to where I was. And now I was in this band, I was playing music. I, I just like had no ill will. Um, right. So, and I wanted to explore it and, and find out about him and sort of see what I could learn about myself and make sure that that chapter wasn't left open. Should he pass away or something of that nature? That's, I mean, it's a, that's a really hard task to do. And, and, uh, I applaud you for, for having, you know, it does take courage to do that. You yeah. Know? It was, like it, you're basically seeing a, you're kind of seeing a stranger who you have these, uh, preemptive thoughts about because of, you know, upbringing and things like that. Yeah, so it, was, like, it was very scary and I didn't know yeah. how I was going to react and like maybe I would have hated it. So I was prepared to leave. We, you know, we rented a car sure. and, uh, you know, like you I had just, your, you had your exit plan. In I, I did. I did have an exit plan, but I showed up and it, it was cool and it ended up being a very cool experience. And has he seen you play? Hmm. I don't think I ever invited yeah. him to a show. Sure. Um, I, I think I never went that route. Yeah. So like I would see him sometimes. Last time I saw him was when I was tour managing King Cruel and he, he came out to the King Cruel show, which was okay. pretty fun because he's, yeah. he's definitely a spectacle and <laughs> <laughs> you know, he likes, he likes meeting the bands and yeah. Was a, uh, were your folks ever like musical people? No, not really. We had yeah. an uncle, an uncle, my my mom's brother that played guitar when when my older brothers were young, but I wasn't really ever exposed to it. So I think that that introduced Rocky and Sonny to like guitar and playing and music and things of that nature. Uh, but I was introduced to it through my brothers. Okay. 
Yeah, I was curious if because you have, you know, such a musical family with your siblings and everything like that, uh, mm-hmm. if you being the younger brother, um, if you were trying to ever go your own route at all, or if you were just like, I want to be like my brothers and play music. No, I like most young kids from Texas, I was obsessed with football. So I when we moved to Seattle, I was pretty small, but also, you know, a, a very angry little tough hillbilly and I was playing peewee football and that was sort of what I did and what I was obsessed with and then I you know Rocky started introducing me to music and so I was kind of into it and then I got into skateboarding and I remember the moment that I knew that I was going to do something different than be a dude into sports was I I came home from peewee football practice I still have like my pads on and <laughs> uh, Rocky and his friend, Justin Deary were in our kitchen and they had our CD like boombox, and they had two albums. And one of them was Yank Crime by Drive Like Jehu. And the other was 24 Hour Revenge Therapy by Jawbreaker. And they were listening to it. And I, I really remember that was the moment that I heard something that was different that I didn't quite understand yet. But I got obsessed with it. And I don't know if maybe I just was wanting to do what my brother was doing, because I definitely was a tag along and really looked up to him. And, you know, for many years was heavily influenced by him because he would take me to all the shows and, you know, I was hanging with my older brother and his friends. And yeah. And but I really just got obsessed with with it and wanted to play guitar. I was always playing my brother's guitars and and things like that. And eventually got my own guitar and then just kind of ran with it. He taught me how to play guitar and I just played all the time. It was all I did. I, sure. put, my, I put my skateboard away and I, you know, <laughs> I just kept going. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like the, you know, the first question I usually ask musicians is like, when was the first time they felt like they found something uh, musically that felt like it was theirs? Like maybe not something that was like being played in the house, but like, mm-hmm. you know, something they discovered on their own. So like if your brother's introducing you to like drive like Jehu and Jawbreaker and, <laughs> and stuff like that, was there, once you like found that, was there, were you like going on your own exploration and finding your own bands or were you sort of following suit with whatever your brother? Yeah. So I remember this the moment where I knew I wanted to play was the first show that I, the first punk show that I went to, which was, was Jawbreaker on the 24 hour tour at the Redmond firehouse, uh, which eventually would be the the first place I ever played a show at myself down the road. So they did shows in your town too. Oh yeah. There was a, there was a music a community teen center called the old firehouse in Redmond, Washington that dude, Fugazi played there. Uh, jawbreaker played there like there if you if you looked at the the flyers i mean they were very supportive of the music scene in seattle every big band that came out of seattle you know cut their teeth playing there yeah it was like a diy spot outside of yes yeah there was the velvet elvis downtown and the old firehouse in redmond and then there was ground zero which was in bellevue and those those were kind of like the three uh, and the Velvet Elvis was in an alleyway, Empire near Square, super sketchy, but a rad little like 150 person venue where you could go see the VSS or Murder City Devils would play their first show. Actually, at the Redmond Firehouse was where the Murder City Devils played, I think, their first show. They did like two shows in one day or in a weekend. And 
we were just in line because we would go there to see bands and that was like what kind of showed us this whole new kind of area of punk rock that we didn't know yeah so like you know we'd been into jehu and jawbreaker and things like that and so we were always just going Um, yeah but but really when i kind of went off on my own to come back to your question is is probably when i met the people in the blood brothers and you know we kind of started doing our thing because they were the only other young kids that were around and we didn't go to school together mark and i went to school together but he was a year older than me um so we knew each other and rocky and Mark's older brother, Rudy, played music together. And so we were sort of connected a little bit yeah. in junior high, um, but didn't know each other that well. And then I ended up going to a different high school. But once I got hooked up with those dudes, we were just always listening to music and finding stuff. Um, and and truly, I attribute a lot of a lot of things that I found to the original guitar player in the blood brothers because i actually wasn't the first guitar player i i played i played bass when we started the band oh Um, and we we had this guitar player devin welch who late in later years was in soiled doves and the vogue and uh he's done so many great bands but he was really in my mind the person that was finding stuff and the friend that was really like showing us stuff and you know while showing me Palatka also like showing me that Led Zeppelin was super fucking cool. So he just, you know, and his guitar playing and everything about him was just very, he, he was always very on like the edge of something that really was a big influence on, on myself. And I think the rest of us. Sure. And it sounds like he also understood and appreciated like the classics and like knew what's a pull from that at the same time. Yeah, totally. Cause he was always listening to Iggy pop and Zeppelin and, and things like that, that, wasn't really on my radar because I was sure. just, you know, listening to Angel Hair yeah. and <laughs> things so, like that. What was uh? You mentioned your brother taught you how to play. You know, was showing you how to play guitar and stuff. Were you just playing on his guitars? And like, when did you get your first guitar? Yeah. Um. So I would play. There were a couple acoustic guitars in the house. He had this red applause acoustic guitar that wasn't nice by by any stretch. And my other brother Sonny had a custom Les Paul that was very, very nice. Um, And so I just would play on theirs all the time. And eventually I got a guitar for Christmas and it was one of those, your parents buy you the guitar, but they're not sure if you're going to play it as you know, so they're not going to, they're not going to put a lot of money into it naturally as, as they should. But I knew right away that I was never going to play that guitar. It was, it was a honer guitar. It, it just was not a good guitar. And, and somehow I knew as a kid, like I can't play this. And I just kept playing my brother's guitars. Was it in a, an electric or an acoustic? It was an acoustic guitar. Yeah. yeah. Um, sure. And so I think my first real electric guitar that I ever got, I bought from Nate Turpin, who he was in the band State Route 522 and Sharks Keep Moving. Uh, And it was one of his old guitars. It was some white Les Paul knockoff. It had the the front pickup was taken out. It had one knob. It was so cool. Uh, And that that was my guitar until I eventually bought, I think, an Epiphone SG. And then that was like a real step up for me. I was very excited. <laughs> sure. It's, I mean, as soon as you get an SG, like if you start playing an SG, especially as like a teen or something like that, like it's just 
such a cool looking guitar. Like it just, there's no way you don't feel sick when you're playing. It, yeah. Yeah. You know? It was, I remember it was cherry red. It was like the, the cherry red, like wood grain one. Uh, it was, oh, it was right. so yeah. Red. Yeah. I love yeah. that thing. Do you still have it? Is it around I at all? I, I don't know. I don't know whatever happened to it. Sure. <laughs> um, do you remember the first song that you learned how to play? Like that that you were excited. You were like, oh my God, I can actually do this. The first riff I I recall ever knowing how to play was uh, the the lead into Today by Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, the neener, neener. Yeah, that was like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I still play it to the, like, you know, now yeah. I'll, I'll play it just because I re- I remember always because it was the one thing I could play. So I just play it all the time. <laughs> sure. I think I remember that's I remember how to play. It's funny. The, I don't play guitar very often whatsoever at all. But like, that's one of those things. It's like once you know how to play it. Yeah, it's in your head forever. Mm-hmm. I think I learned it from like the back of a Guitar World magazine, like reading the tab or something like that. Yeah, that's so uh, funny. I don't know how I figured it out. Maybe one of my brothers taught me or maybe I learned it myself or just figured it out. Yeah, I don't remember. Um. What was so, you know, when I look at your discography, it seems like uh, the Blood Brothers and Waxwing were like pretty much around the exact same time. But like, what was actually the first band that you did? Was it one of those two? Um, no. So I I remember Rocky had Waxwing and I all, all I wanted was to to play in the band and I was learning to play the guitar and he was showing me and I was obsessed and. I really wanted him to ask me to play, but, but he didn't. And so when I met the the guys in Blood Brothers that would become what be, would become the Blood Brothers, they were in a band called Vade. Um, which, like V-A-D-E? V-A-D-E. V-A-D-E. And okay. did you ever hear the band Jodon Baker? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a yeah. split. I have a split of theirs. Yeah, so it might be the it's like a big like brown cardboard. Yeah, and it like yeah. flips open. Yeah, yeah. it's so, actually funny. Nathan uh, from the Casket Lottery sent that to me as a gift because he was like, "I think oh, wow. you'd like this." Yeah. Yeah. So the band on the other side is Vade, which is oh uh, shit, is the guys from Blood Brothers and Jordan's twin sister Hannah, who was plays in the gossip now, uh, but she was a drummer, and so I was. It's wild to realize that I own that and I didn't even realize that. <laughs> yeah, that's, you, I mean, that's the sickest thing about splits is like you sometimes yeah. focus on the one band, but you don't realize mm-hmm. what's on the other side. Yeah, okay. And that came out on Jake Snyder from Minus the Bears record label. He put okay. that out and he, right. I think he recorded probably both sides of it as well because he was the first person recording music that everybody knew. So they're a Washington band. Yeah. Both of yeah. them. Yeah, Jordan Baker. Well, Jordan Baker, I think, was maybe from Bellingham, or they were, they were in Washington, but I can't remember exactly where oh they were from. I, so when Nathan gifted me that, I was assuming it was like a Kansas band, that like no. it was like some band that they were influenced by. I, for, I forget what his motivation is. Sorry, Nathan, but like uh, <laughs> uh, he was. I think it was just like I think you would like this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Oh yes. wow, my my brain is blown right now. Okay, so so there was that band. Right. So they, they had that band and I wasn't really in a band yet. I was just a friend because I met them at shows and they had already had it. And they actually asked me at one point, like, Hey, do you know anyone to play guitar that plays guitar? And I played, but I was not confident. Like I I wouldn't have considered myself. So I immediately suggested Mark. Because I knew that he, Mark Agidar, I, I knew he played guitar and he was good and he was a, a little older than me. And so I, I gave Devin Mark's phone number and then Mark like ended up playing guitar in Vade. And so I was like always going to their band practice. I was basically their just groupie. Like, yeah, you know, we, we were all friends, but I wasn't in the band. Yeah. And then 
we eventually, when we all started getting into more like chaotic music and stuff, we wanted to start a band like that. And so we started a band that was all the members of the Blood Brothers at the time. Uh, and it was called Pan's Arrival. Okay. And I think we played like one show in a parking lot or something. And it was it was pretty cool. The band, it was, it was not quite as punk as the Blood Brothers, but it was noisy. And okay. we, we played like one or two shows. And then we... We changed it up. We wanted to, like, we got obsessed with, I think we saw the Murder City Devils around that time. And then we got obsessed with Area 51 and the Deathwish Kids and kind of went down, like, that rabbit hole. And, like, this is what we want to do. We want to sound like Area 51. Like, I mean, yeah, your band absolutely was the pipeline, like, the center of the pipeline between that Washington sound of blood brothers things like that and then mm-hmm. all of the san diego stuff you've already referenced like you can tell right. that you guys were listening to angel hair and probably like antioch arrow swing and kids yeah kids and all yeah. of that sort of stuff yeah. yeah so it's like you guys were genuinely the the exact <laughs> venn diagram in the center of, yeah. of all of that stuff yeah for sure um, um go ahead oh no no but so yeah so we Johnny put the guitar down and we had two singers now because Area 51 had two singers and it was Andrea Zolo, who was the singer from Pretty Girls Make Graves and Spencer Moody, who was a singer of Murder City Devils. And we basically made our first like demo tapes that were just complete ripoffs of those bands. <laughs> was that now, uh, was that under the pans? No. So we, Blood Brothers? we weren't the Blood Brothers yet, actually. We were we called ourselves the justice league of America. That was the, like our first band name. And yeah. we even, so that place, the Redmond firehouse I was telling you about, they had this really cool thing called like community band pool. And basically all of like the young bands every Wednesday or one Wednesday a month would get together and they would talk about what was going on in the scene and shows that were coming up. But at the end of it, there was this really cool thing where every band would play their demo that they made for the room. And so we had our, our tape that we had made in our practice space. And we, you know, we went cause and basically the way it worked is everyone would vote. Whoever got the most votes would headline the show. And then it kind of worked like backwards. So, sure. all, you know, you'd have four bands that played at the end based on how everyone there voted. And we got the most votes on our like first one. Yeah. So, so we, we were justice league of America. And I think there was even a poster that was made for it. Okay. And in the time between playing that show and the show actually happening, which I think was in like August of 1998, um, we changed the band name to the Blood Brothers. And I don't remember why. I think we just, it was probably Devin, to be honest. He was probably like, this is lame. We need to call our band the Blood Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and so we changed it. So by the time we played, we were like, we're not Justice League. We're the Blood Brothers. <laughs> yeah. The Justice League, Justice League of America. I don't. I think that like if I would have not heard the band and I just saw that name, I don't know that I would have. I would have almost expected it to be like a like a straightforward hardcore band or something. Yeah. Like that, you know, for sure. For sure. Uh, um, tell me about the first show you ever played. As the Blood Brothers or just, just as ever? Any, ever, yeah. What do you remember from the very first show you ever played? I'm trying to remember. I think the first one I really remember ever doing was was probably the, the Pan's Arrival one. And it was mm-hmm. in this parking lot in Woodenville, Washington, where I would, I would later live, actually, um, in a community center. And there was a big... I just remember a big chain link fence and a bunch of bands playing and... 
I was really obsessed with this band at the time. They're called Breakwater. Do you do you remember that band Breakwater? Um, Sounds they, familiar, but they went on to be the Republic of Freedom Fighters, and then eventually, one of them became Frog Eyes. Okay, uh, and they were a band that became friends with my brother and his friends. Um, and they just looked really cool. And so I remember being obsessed with, I had a pompadour and, you know, khaki pants and a black button up. And I was sort of embracing, which is kind of like a San Diego hardcore sure. like vibe for sure. And I remember just sort of embracing that. And, uh, I had my white, my white guitar. And I remember this one point and there's a cool photo of it and we're playing and I just look up and I see this dude and he's just like jumping the fence behind us. And kids are like moshing and, you know, we're young and yeah. it was super fun. And I, I remember that as probably being one of my first early show experiences. Were you, did you take to performing live pretty quickly where it just like gave you the thrill you were looking for? Yeah. It, pretty much the easiest thing ever because when we would rehearse we would destroy our practice room you know what i mean yeah so it was like it was playing a show was just like playing in the practice room and and we had this really cool spot because johnny johnny's parents were very cool and they had a garage that was separated from their main house and upstairs of this garage we were we just took it over it it was our band room and we could make as much noise as we wanted until like 7 p.m. or something and we right. would just we would just destroy our like i don't know why <laughs> it's just what we, you're yeah it's yeah used. we weren't we weren't trying to like we need to do this so we can get better at doing this it was really just all this weird teen energy i think yeah and you know we were trying to emulate the the bands that we would go see and we would just like throw our guitars on the ground and tackle each other and go nuts for for no reason yeah <laughs> you know I, what i mean i can relate so i can <laughs> relate so hard i don't i don't have a single guitar that is that is not damaged in some capacity from like that energy like yeah that so early screamo stuff to like even you know mm-hmm. stuff you're taking in from nirvana all of that like your yeah. brain is just like throw your shit around yeah so really i i think when we started playing shows it really it intensified so one that was already like our natural state of being when we were playing the songs but then when we were around people we would just really let it go and then from a very very early on our shows were always fun you know we we always had friends and then crowds and mosh pits and yeah from a very very early stage of our band and and we just fed off of that energy This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. You mentioned uh, playing the demo tape for for the community um, center situation. And Mm -hmm. I was curious if like what your first recording experience was, was that like done with a four track or was that? done in a studio what what do you know that 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 specific recording was made on a boom box that you could 
hit record on and and record. Just, yeah, yeah. The, the built-in mic. But our first our first real recording experience was with Jake Snyder uh, from Minus the Bear. He had in his basement recording gear, and he was recording bands, and we we went and recorded our first seven inch there with him. And that was the blood for Blood Brothers. That was Blood Brothers, yeah. That's, so that's the self titled one that came out on Hopscotch. No, it's a split with a band called Stiletto, and it was a benefit for for Food Not Bombs. Okay, um, uh, yeah. So sometimes it's like hard to when you look at the like, especially on a site like Discogs, like because it, it has that coming mm-hmm. out in 1999, but for some reason it has the self titled one in 90. Yeah. So I was, but 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 truly, we did record that self-titled seven inch on hopscotch with jake as well so okay so that makes sense and i saw even that first uh waxwing seven inch was also done by jet by jake yeah did you did were you not so you weren't in waxwing to begin with when did you start right no so i was in the band before the first album came out but prior to that they were making demos and playing shows and i was i i would just oogle at at the band and you know always try to like play with rocky and i think one time i was like can i just play like with you a little bit and then i was getting good enough to where i I think he realized like oh like this might actually be pretty cool uh and then i eventually joined the band before for mad men only came out and the seven inches and all that stuff yeah okay so i was gonna say like was the was the original iteration of um of waxwing just just rocky on guitar like one guitar yeah, it was Rocky and Andrew Hartley on bass and Rudy Gadgetar on drums. So oh, yeah. Add, so adding that like, adding that second guitar, I mean, it probably even just makes Rocky's life just a little bit easier. Too, I'm sure. You, yeah. yeah, you have that going <laughs> the whole time for sure. Yeah, um, I was actually curious uh, because you between Blood Brothers and Waxwing, you put out records on Second Nature early on. Mm-hmm. And that is a Kansas label. Obviously, you guys uh, Waxwing had a split with the casket lottery who we recently mentioned who were a Kansas yeah. band. I was actually curious where the relationship with that label started. Like how did, how did that connect? That's a good question. I bet Rocky would, would know more than me because he was more of the catalyst for it. But I, I think Dan, it, as, so Dan, like Dan Askew, right? That's Dan Askew. Yeah. So did, was it potentially like your relationship could have started because of Waxwing and then he was just down to put out Blood Brothers stuff because of the, yeah, the family I, connection? I think so. I think I think it did kind of go that route. It was like we had already done records together and he was sort of involved and um it just made sense to sure. to do the do the Blood Brothers record with him. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um those first two blood brothers records you guys did please i've always wondered uh, i've always uh never known is it matt bayless or bales Ooh, great question i always say bayless i always say bayless too I i've always said bayless. Matt, yeah. matt bayless exactly uh, and, but and, i'll randomly hear someone who's maybe not worked with him call him bales and i'm always just like fuck it's bayless bayless okay so you did those first two records with matt bayless um mm-hmm. And he had already been recording for a few years at that point. Um, yeah. Was that, uh, how was that like studio experience for you? I mean, I, I really attribute a lot of the success of Seattle hardcore and, and emo music to him. I, he yeah. really 
because he was working out of he worked with Stone Gossard and they had Studio Litho, which was the Pearl Jam studio. So it was a very, very nice recording studio. And I think it was one of those situations where in his off time, he was able to produce his friends bands and things he liked. And uh, we would go in for a couple days at a time. So it was definitely going into a studio like that for us was was like, whoa, this holy is, shit. Yeah, it's freaking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, we only ever had two or three days to record the record. And <laughs> so yeah. it was very like run, run and gun. And, and were they we, recorded live? Yeah, we pretty much recorded not the vocals, but the we vocals. would record most of the band and then do overdubs and some over tracking. But for the most part, the band would record together on, I think, I think adultery and, and March on, but we definitely went back and like retract guitars. Um, so when you and I first became pals, I remember we got coffee and mm-hmm. I was blown away to realize that you and I are basically like very close in age. I think we're like, yeah. we're, we're like nine months apart or something like that, which I was just like, mm-hmm. holy shit. Cause then it came to the realization that you were like 17 to 18 when you were recording uh burn piano Island. Right. Yeah. Cause we started the band, I was 15 and then I actually turned 19 while we were recording Burn Piano oh, and Burn. So okay. I, yeah, yeah. 2000, that makes sense. Yeah. 2000. Cause that yeah. came out 2002. I had my, I had my birthday at the studio, you know, like, right. So that blows my goddamn mind. And then also <laughs> on top of that, I didn't realize that, uh, March on and Burn Piano Island had come out in the same year. Yeah, which is also fucking insane to me. Um, so, go ahead. So a little bit about that, I, and I could have this wrong in my memory, sure. But I'm pretty sure that this is what happened. So, we recorded. Actually, I'll take it back a little bit. It kind of there's a backstory to why that happened, why those two records came out so quickly and close together. After we wrote. This Adultery is Ripe, the Blood Brothers was a, a side project, really. It was a side project to Waxwing and their band, Vade. And we just kind of did it. And we were going to break up. Like We put, we were going to put out This Adultery is Ripe, and we booked a U.S. tour, and we were going to do that tour and come home and just not really do the band anymore. I don't really remember why. It wasn't dramatic or anything. It just wasn't something we were taking that serious. Yeah. And I remember... We played in San Diego at Pokies. Uh, I think Run For Your Fucking Life played. And we met JP there, Justin Pearson. And we were very excited to meet him because we loved everything on 3-1-G and the Locust and Swing Kids. You know, they were hero- heroes of ours. And he invited us to stay at his house because that's the way that it worked back then where you could always find somewhere to crash. And I remember we spent the night... And the next morning we were hanging out and he having coffee and he just asked us, he's like, Hey, would you guys ever want to do a record on three, one G? And we were immediately like, well, we were going to break up, but yes, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then we went home from that tour and started writing March on electric children. So we, we really weren't going to be a band uh, until he asked us to make a record. So you know, thanks, Justin. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, so we go home and we start working on March on. There's no real timeline for it. I don't remember how long it took us, but eventually we 
we record it with with Matt Bayless and it's done and we don't have a release plan for it and we basically just sit on it because the artwork can't get finished mm. and it, like the artwork just wasn't happening or it was delayed and you know, no one was making it a priority and so basically in that time we were still playing shows and stuff we got is when we got approached by John Freeze, which is the dude that managed Ross Robinson at the time. And we were getting like emails on our MySpace or something, I think, or, or somewhere we were getting emailed and ignoring it. So you're like, this, this is stupid. Like, what is this guy? Like what? Yeah. Like, we weren't taking it serious. We thought it was a joke or like spam. Um, and then they were persistent. And, you know, so we were like, sa- like, like saying, Hey, we like this guy, Ross wants to, yeah meet you guys okay yeah he wants to meet you and and he had recorded at the drive-in at that point and we were fans of that obviously but at yeah. the time everything else he had done was the mortal enemy of our band yeah you know what i mean I, not so much now i have a much like more diverse perspective on music in general but at the time at the time of course at the yeah. time that was like nothing like what we wanted to be involved with at all and yes <laughs> yeah and so <laughs> as you know like talking to him you realize like and you get to know him you realize like how much that did affect the stuff he wanted you know he was really inspired by and wanted to work with because people had that that notion of like yeah this kid guy yeah you know so he truly i'm so thankful he was persistent because eventually he came up to a show did you guys ever play a show at the Paradox Theater in Seattle? Was that still there when you guys no. were coming through? No? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he came out to a show up there, and we met him, and he was really cool. And we were still kind of like, okay, like, yeah, you know, this is this is weird. But um, basically, we went through the process of, like, are we going to do this? Because he's very persistent. And there was this new label, Artist Direct, that was starting, and it was the guy that started Interscope that was doing a new thing, and all of a sudden there were these talks of signing like a record deal, and I was in my first year of community college and had no, we had no ambitions to be an active working band. That And did you even have material written? No, we just, I mean, we had March on Electric Children recorded. It totally, was done. yeah. So it's like you guys uh, had, like it was like yeah. you're being hit up and you're being, um, you know, chased by all these people that want to work, would do all this stuff with you, but you're, but you also don't even have the material ready. Yeah, to go. we were just yeah. we weren't even a functioning entity by any means. We were just yeah. kids that played in a band, and we were we would sell out, you know, four hundred tickets in Seattle. So we were actually kind of a decent sized band at that sure. time. Yeah, um, but it was yeah we were we were not trying to fuck with ross at yeah. all yeah <laughs> yeah um and then i remember it got to a point where we i remember jordan calling me and we were talking about it and it was just like maybe we should do this because we what we'll always wonder what would happen if we don't do this and i very i remember like that, that specific moment where i was like okay like we're gonna do this jordan and i just talked about it and we've like decided not that we made the decisions for the band but that was sort of like do you be, think became that, our ethos about it sure i'm sure I, I i'm curious how you think about this like do you think that all of you had in the back of your mind like a little that curiosity was there but you just needed one person to finally just say probably, it. Probably, yeah. Probably was just someone needed to be like, guys, we maybe we should consider this. 
like this, this actually could be really cool. And I think like the fact that with relationship of command and at the drive-in, like, and Ross working with them and them kind of coming from the same similar world as us, it, it certainly like made it more intriguing. Like, Oh, these guys like, and I think Morgan even had a conversation with Cedric because we exactly were, what I was going to ask. I was yeah. going to say, was there a relationship there? Cause I'm sure between JP and like that mm-hmm. sort of world, like you at least, it probably wouldn't have been too hard to get someone in that band's number yeah, to like I think ask I, their experience. Yeah. And I, I recall, I don't know what their conversation was, but I do know that it was, you know, it ended positively so much that it was like, okay, like I talked to Cedric and he, he said it would be cool. Like, you know, we should do it. And so, I think we we started to get excited about the idea of our weird band being able to do more than we could ever imagine. Um, you know what I mean? And this is something that, I mean, I've always been fascinated by that era of music. Um, some of the most, you know, some, some of these bands were like quite abrasive, but I feel like Blood Brothers being the most abrasive, getting signed to a label that is like basically a major label. Like, yeah. did, was that was ross the um the motivator for artist direct guy you know for for artist direct to like work with you or was like the label seeing something in you to no no they they gave him an imprint basically on the label where it was it was like ross is gonna do the records he wants to do here and is that the i am recordings thing yeah 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 so i I, I don't know if on the CD or whatever, if it has both, I think it might have both like the artist direct and the I am, but yeah, they, they were definitely just following his lead because this, the shit they were signing, the yeah. stuff that they were signing was terrible and they were dumping tons of money into these artists, crazy amounts of money. I mean, it's absurd the amount of money they spent on our weird band, but I think we were the only band that actually ever did anything. And they probably sure. spent like a 10th of the money on our band that they did on some of these artists that they were signing. Also like, I mean, of that era, I remember artist direct was a website. It was like some sort mm-hmm. of like a, it was, was it to like get your music promoted or yeah, like, it was, or like it was almost like a seat, like, like you could order CDs on it or something. Yeah. I it was, yeah. I can remember what it yeah. was, but, but I remember even at that time, cause I was working at the record store at the time, like mm-hmm. being surprised, but I was like, wait, this is a label. Like, yeah. I thought it was just the site that helped you promote your blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it was Ted Field who started Interscope and Mark Geiger from Lollapalooza. And they basically teamed up and, I don't know, got investments or, or something. But they yeah. had a lot of money. Yeah. Those guys that they were yeah. they were shelling out. Um, and how long were you guys? So when you guys eventually, did did you write the record and then go meet up with Ross or Okay, yeah. So 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 full circle and back to the original question, yeah. which was how did those records come out in the same year? Oh, sure. So yeah. so so we had March on and then we started these talks with Ross and it was happening and we pretty much we were going to do a record and he even actually wanted to he thought you guys just want to re-record March on Electric Children and, and and redevelop those songs, which we were adamantly against. It was like an immediate no, which I'm so happy we we sure. we did because it gave us the opportunity to make burn. Um, but basically, we went in, into the practice space. So we signed the deal. It was crazy. They 
started putting money in our bank accounts. It, it was wild. Like yeah. I, I quit community college. Actually, I, I kept one class. I continued taking like a creative writing class at the time because I felt strange about not doing anything. So I did like a night class. But basically, we we rented this practice space in downtown L- uh, Seattle. And, you know, where before we had hourly practice spaces, now we just had your own spot. We had our own spot and we started like, we would go down there for eight hours a day and just make noise and, you know, often unsuccessfully. And sometimes we would come up with the song and, but basically we wrote the whole album and then he came to Seattle for like a week of pre-production uh, where he came into the space, which was also a very new experience, experience for us yeah. because you know, like prior we would just meet Matt Bayless at studio litho and bang out as much as we could, you know, and God bless him for being so good at his job and, and, knowing you know having such good taste in music and style to you know did it uh did it take you well like how long did it take you to start to accept an outside opinion on your songs because especially at that age yeah you're sort of like you have the punk brain of like these are fucking our songs man we know what we're doing kind of a thing like was was that was that a a a difficult transition or did it kind Um, of smooth was it smooth it's it's weird because i think even through all of our records of everyone who produces there there was never a heavy influence on the songs like truly like structures didn't change like we we wouldn't allow anyone to fuck with our shit okay like we weren't like blatantly like no, like you don't have a say in this, but it was more like our energy was just, we just weren't that the band where someone was like, let's like move this structure around or slow this part down or cut this out. I mean, I, I don't think that we, no, we, we definitely just did what we wanted all the time. Sure. <laughs> so was Ross just basically like, like just the biggest cheerleader was that sort of his role like just really excited about it i just i think he brought so much positive energy into what we were doing and you know i think he truly helped us get focused and paid attention to performance and you know, you know, the deal with him, he's yeah. all, it's all energy based. And yeah. that, that side of it was something that we didn't know anything about really, you know so, what I mean? And so, so in my mind, he, he brought that and he brought a lot of wisdom about recording and tracking and things that we didn't know about and things of that nature. But in terms of cutting up the songs and changing things around, I don't feel that too much of that happened. Okay. That's in the studio. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and then I, I mean, this is this is obviously for for the vocalists of the band, but like, mm-hmm. you know, he's so notorious for like wanting to get into the nitty gritty of all of that stuff. Yeah. And with the lyrics on Burn Piano Island being just so bizarre, like, was was he trying to like get into that stuff, or was it just like let your freak flag fly? Because no, the lyrics think... on the record are obviously all over the place. Yeah, I, I don't think I was super present for the nitty gritty tracking of the vocals. I would kind of like let them do their thing, but yeah, yeah I, I think he definitely asks is asked the question, you know, sure. What, what does it mean? What do you want? Who are you? Yeah. What, what is this to you yeah. enough times to where you actually can look inward and you start finding out things about yourself that you didn't know or consider to ask yourself 
um, which is one of the greatest things about not only working with him, but being friends with him. Yeah, you know no, I mean? no, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> just, just as a as a person in your life, I, I've relied on him many times in my life in hard times. Uh, even if I hadn't talked to him in months, I feel that I could call that guy at any time and and leave a better person, or you know, having the the assistance or support that I was looking for. Yeah, for sure. Damn. Yeah, he's he's truly, truly, truly one of a kind. Uh, what was the first Blood Brothers tour then? The very first Blood Brothers tour we did was a West Coast tour, and I remember it. We we went in our friend. We had two two friends: this guy Zane and this guy Ian that were sort of just part of our crew. And yeah, Zane had a little pickup truck, and Ian had his mom's minivan. And so we went in a pickup truck and a minivan, and both vehicles. Yeah, both vehicles. Holy so we shit. just we just crammed in and. Went you down just put the all the coast. gear in the in the pickup truck, and then you got yeah. You <laughs> yeah, two people would ride in the pickup truck with the gear, and then everyone else would cram into the minivan. And I was remember there a top on the on the yes, pack? It, it had a canopy. And, okay, good. And we 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 named the truck Deborah, and we spray painted in pink on the side of it, Deborah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Um, and I remember, I think we played in Portland. And then it, we did that like crazy Portland to San Francisco drive Ugh, yeah. overnight because when you're young, you don't realize that you can't play Portland and then San Francisco the next day without driving 11 uh -huh. hours. <laughs> yeah. You learn that lesson and then you do your best to always yeah. have a day off between the yeah. two. Yeah. It doesn't but always I, happen. But I remember, I remember very vividly the pickup truck running out. I get, there's that long stretch on the I-5 where it's just fields. It's like yeah. very flat. Yeah. And we ran out of gas at like 6 a.m. Uh, like, Zane was like, uh, I don't know why the truck just stopped. <laughs> and we're waiting. And a, a police officer eventually pulled over and, and took someone to get some gas and okay. got us back on the road. But uh, yeah, not, yeah, not ideal. The, no, not uh, ideal. When was the first time that you got to tour Europe? Ooh, what was the first Blood Brothers tour there? It was definitely after we signed. So it was that the burn piano? I yeah, remember. it was. It was around that time. But that's the other crazy thing about those two records is that, um, because we had March on done, we were able to. Well, actually, we should get back to that in a minute. But yeah, um, the first European tour we ever did, we definitely did it after. It was like for Burn. Okay, yeah. Because and we was had it like a headliner, or was it like for festivals? Do you remember? I think it was a headliner. Okay, we had we had tour support and a a yeah. big booking agent at the time and this guy rob marcus who is is now a pretty a fairly large booking agent he was the cousin of mark geiger so and he was running artist direct in europe okay so he was kind of like our our liaison over there great guy like yeah amazing guy became a great friend and looked out for us and you know moving forward he was jaguar loves booking agent and just a really really great guy uh, sure and so we were definitely taken care of when we went out there. Yeah. yeah. But our shows were small and you, nobody knew what to do with us. And <laughs> Yeah. Dude, I was, I'm actually kind of curious of that because your band is aggressive. I, you know, like there's this thing where um, I feel like bands in Europe, uh, especially punk adjacent bands, especially if they like get to be on like the major label, which means over there, they're likely going to get on the radio at some mm -hmm. in, in some station yeah, um, because they support aggressive music, like on the radio there more than the U S ever would. Right, right. So like, um, yeah, I was curious, like what, 
parts of Europe maybe took to you guys better? Like, were you, did you guys do well in Germany or did you mainly do well in the UK? Like, did any I of that? Would, I would say that Germany and the UK were probably our best, our yeah. best places. Germany, definitely better than the UK. Got it. But we Got did it. okay in Spain and France and those, those countries. And we had a few shows in the Netherlands that were good and Sweden that were good, but we never got as big as we did in Germany and the UK. You know, with how sexy the Blood Brothers music is, I would just imagine that like Paris and like Italy shows would have been <laughs> would have been very, very. Oh, very... you know what? Yeah, we did have good shows in Italy. That's yeah. true. Yeah. 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 The sexy nature of that band. There's no. There's... <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of it as sexy. Oh. I'll take I'll take it. <laughs> um, so, OK, so uh, I was back to my curiosity of the two records are coming out in right, the same year. Right. Did uh. Was there like, did you feel um, like March On uh, got promoted well, considering you were about to do this other record? Like, did like was that a well, hard record to promote because you're like all of your attention is like seemingly on this? No, actually, record? it's actually the opposite because Artist Direct paid for all the promotion for it. Oh, like they probably, oh, they could have looked at that like, oh, this is just kind of an easy thing yeah, to they, promote the band. They, they basically... And that's why we were able to do them so close is because we finished Burn Piano Island Burn before March On ever came out. So we had two albums. Yeah. And the label really saw it as an opportunity to build because we were we never would have shelved March On. That it was very sure. important. It was very important to us that we put that record out and we toured those songs and we did that. So basically Artist Direct bought us a van and gave us tour support for a whole whatever that year of March On was and helped us pay for advertising they made promo copies they did all sorts of stuff uh to to really help push that and, and even then, though the record was still on because is that is that 31g and second nature because isn't second nature do the vinyl maybe uh no 31g did the vinyl oh, they and, did? Okay. And, the, and the cd for that okay. one so it second nature did the vinyl the cd for adultery and hot and sound virus did the vinyl which You're was right. originally right. hopscotch. So right, 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 right. Okay. But yeah, basically we were, you know, sort of had a shadow major label yeah. under the guise of being on a super like punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> Re- realist realistically, like they they helped out quite a bit because they were it's, we it's were like able a to go side version of like the upstream deal, even though like that wasn't the intention. But it's yeah, sort of, it just I mean, kind of like yeah, it worked for- out that way. Like they had their investment and it was an opportunity to like help us grow and cut our teeth on the road for yeah. when the record came out. And so we, we did that and we pretty much just went straight. The touring didn't stop, which was crazy too. Cause we just bled straight into burn coming out and just hit the road. Um, wow. Pretty much for like two years straight. I feel like we were, we were on the road. Yeah. We definitely burned through a couple transmissions on our vans. <laughs> you know what Literally. I mean? yeah. yeah. I can only imagine. Holy shit. Yeah, but uh, it's it's a pretty wild and unique scenario that I I don't know that it's really happened that way. It's like you said, it wasn't an an intentional like we want to you know we're Starbucks and we want to make our this this small coffee shop look cool. Yeah, uh, it just was that was the situation, and fortunately they were down to let us do it that way. Yeah, because you know for listeners like around that time there were so many bands that were immediately major label bands but the major labels were concerned of a band just going straight to a major label so like 
they would uh you know be involved for a like convince a label maybe like a ferret records or mm-hmm. like a fuel by ramen or whatever one of those things to like yeah we'll put it out on this but then the next thing will be on our big thing so it like right. looks like a natural progression but like <laughs> for you you guys kind of had a built-in system to where it almost made their jobs they didn't really yeah, have was, to do that it was, it was set up for them was, already to exactly exactly to lay groundwork for us yeah so. and plus on top of that you already had this adultery is ripe out which was also on an indie indie league right of course yeah um so then you guys followed that with with crimes um was there uh was there talk of like going back to ross or was it like no we want to just try something different because i know you recorded that record up in seattle as well which i'm sure could yeah. have played a major role yeah i mean this this came up recently because we've got the burn piano burn piano island burn i think it's a 20 or 25 year next year coming out where we're repackaging and doing a cool release with epitaph and we were talking about it because we wanted we were just revisiting it and thinking about liner notes and this came up in it and you know it really it really wasn't easy it was pretty awful actually never is yeah it's always I, I, i think i think we were you know one really ungrateful little shitheads because Ross wanted to do crimes and we, I don't know what we were thinking, like why we would ever think, I guess you're young and you don't, you don't, you don't see a bigger picture. And we basically were just like, we want to work with John Goodmanson. He's one of our heroes. We want to make the record with our next record with him. We've always wanted to record with him. So, you know what? I mean, look, it's a touchy (laughs) situation because, um, you do great work with somebody and also the public thinks of your relationship with that person and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, you're only on this earth once who knows how long your band is going to exist. You know, like you, I, I think anyone should take any opportunity that excites them. You know what I'm saying? Like this is someone else who's a hero of yours also getting to record a record in your home state. Yeah. Is, is something that's exciting. So like I I totally get it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, no one could really blame you for it, but at the same time, it's like there was that prior relationship and you do feel some sort of like an allegiance to someone or something like that because they helped all of this. Like, like I understand the struggle. We've been in that same boat with people in the past, you know, like it does get tough, but, um, when I had, I was the one that called him to tell him that we weren't going to do it with him too, which, which wasn't super easy. Yeah. And I, I remember him saying, well, I think I'm the person for it. And I just, if I recall, I just had to be like, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. Yeah. We just, you know, we want to do this. Um, it's like a band. It's a band call. It's not just my call kind of a thing. Yeah. And I, yeah, he was so cool. I mean, he's raw. So he's, and he's also been through it and yeah, he, he has so much love. So of course he, I'm sure he was pretty like bummed and yeah. But down he's, the road, he also go. I mean, you ended up working with him, obviously, with like Head Moon City and stuff. Yeah, but like, yeah. He's also the first person to crack a joke. Like I remember we, yeah, uh, when we we did a we tried it we tried him out for one song and then we ended up doing the LP with him. But like even when we were leaving doing the one song with him, he was laughing and was like, "Yeah, I don't get a lot of repeat business." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's I like know. it's like you look at his career you're like yeah but you did get some pretty strong repeat business you know you had slip you had two slipknot yeah. records you got two corn yeah. records out of it's, you it's it's crazy to, it's crazy to think of the opportunities that 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 guy has created for so many people just yeah because, because he believes in it and you know because he wasn't always a big producer I, I i recall him telling me stories about sleeping on the floor of the corn practice space and having no money and mm-hmm. yeah basically building it and and then fast forward he's in a position now where people listen to him and will back him and put money into things he wants to do and for for lack of a better term, a tastemaker. Yeah, for, no, for for rock music and one thousand percent. I mean, that's why he ended up getting a label. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, this. Uh, I I felt it was very similar with, uh, you know, I, we'll we'll obviously talk about Jr. Slayer, but like mm-hmm. the, you know, you guys just did you just did a record with Will Yip, and I looked yeah. at Will Yip the same way that those labels were looking at Ross, where it's like oh, Will yeah. Yip has a, has an independent like was given independent labels through a major label kind of a situation I was looking at, it, I was like, this is the same thing that happened to Ross Robinson labels. Yeah. Think like, Oh, it's the producer that's doing this. And it's like, yes, that's certainly a part of it, but you know, there's who's to say what the magic really is. You know, I think it's, it's, you sort of need everyone to do a role in order for, I think it's to, to work. Like yeah. You gotta, you gotta, if you're a producer or someone aspiring to be a producer and, you have the the wherewithal to record and start figuring that out. You need that person to do that for their friends that are in the bands. You yeah. Know? And sometimes you have people who are in bands that are doing it and there's a rare occasion where that's worked out and it's like super cool. But I, I think you really, it's the perfect remedy of, you know, I think about a guy like Will where he's was just recording his friends bands at night. And yeah. then basically built this entire community and style and genre of music based off of just having access to a studio, being really talented and driven towards what he wants to do yep. and being able to take his friend's band and make them sound good and yeah. piece them together and, and put it in and present it in a way that people gravitate towards. Yeah. And you know start to I mean? form and start to sort of like formulate a sound. Yeah. You know? Totally. And then then once you get to that point, same thing that happened with Ross, it's like you then want to um divert from that sound that people think of you for. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like Will has certainly done that. You know, Will's recorded a lot of bands that sound sonically like the Tiger's Jaw records, but then he also does you know, he's done stuff for like turnover, which sounds nothing. Yeah. Like yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he's able to, to go back and forth. Um, anyway, I wanted to, uh, before we, we hopped off blood brothers, I wanted to ask yeah. how it was recording, uh, or like working with Gee from, uh, oh. Gazi. Cause he yeah. was, uh, he was like, what, like, co- was it considered like co-producer on young machines? Yeah. Or- yeah okay. Him and him and John were, they co-produced it. And obviously a, a dream come true for, for us. Yeah you know, as, as music fans, <laughs> how did, like, how did that relationship start? I mean, this, yeah, Geek from Fugazi so producing a record. We, we had a tour manager, uh, by the name of Pete Stahl and he was the singer of Scream. I know. Yeah. I know you Pete. know Pete. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So Pete was our tour manager for a few years and I remember 
we went to DC and he was, and he was like, Oh yeah. Like Ian and, and Guy are going to come out to the show. Cause he was friends with them. And it was definitely certainly like a big deal. It was like, Fuck yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So I remember, and this was after burn came was out and actually I think it was, I don't know if crimes was out yet or not, but basically Guy had worked with the gossip um, which Jordan's twin sister was in. And so we knew he was producing records and obviously we love the blonde redhead records and just him in general. So it was kind of like, Ooh, I wonder if he would record. Yeah. You know, it was in the back of our head, like, yeah. but, th- but like, no, cause we didn't really seem like we were up his alley. And I remember he was at one of our shows at the black cat in DC. And he was telling me, he's like, yeah, I, I heard about you guys because we, when we put out Burn Piano and then Burn, we released these promo CDs that had two songs. I think it was Ambulance and one other song. Mm-hmm. And it had a piano on the front, like a red piano. And he was saying, Yeah, I just, I saw it there. They were free and I, I liked that cover. So I picked it up. So that's like how he found our band was, Whoa. was, was like that. And then the promo CD works. The promo CD works. <laughs> um, <laughs> or it, it worked. Rather, (laughs) um so that that was exciting to know that he we were like even on his radar sure at all and then obviously there was the the hannah connection and he'd worked with john on blonde redhead so when we were talking to john about doing it was like what do you think about getting gee involved and which he was totally up for and so i think it was like a perfect storm again of like the situation working where is there anything you felt like you learned from him That guy really, I don't know if I've ever met a better guy. He He's so, and it still blows my mind sometimes just because like the fan in me, like the little kid, like there's not a lot of people that I know that I'm still even a little like, damn, I can't believe like I know that dude. Like he still comes out to anytime I play a show in New York, he's there. Like he comes out and like, it, it, it's always really cool. But I just really loved his, his energy and sort of, positive attitude towards what we were doing and, you know, kind of making sure that we were again, like staying like on course. Okay. Same deal. We weren't really restructuring things and things like that too much. We weren't cutting up the songs and maybe we were shaving things here and there, but um, producing that band must've been a little bit scary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine i can imagine yeah because uh, it's like for to make that kind of music you obviously have your own vision for what it's going to be yeah, and to have and an outside perspective it, it it does feel a little tough other than it other than just being like maybe maybe do that one time instead of two times yeah or you could play that a little bit better or you, like i i think with for ross it must have been really difficult because you have 40 different parts just smashed together. And so what's the, what do you, what do you do with that? Like, what can you do with that? Especially with a band that's not interested in at that time, choruses really and traditional song structure. And I'm, I imagine, which we got more into later on. I'll, I'll take a guess that with, with what, where Ross probably was having the most fun with you guys was probably finding crazy pedals to use and like oh, yeah. finding crazy like sounds to make because that's where he gets like yeah it's amazing that that actually 
Yes, because he will plug them all in. Yes. They're all over the ground. Oh my god! Um, yes. You know he's going crazy with it. It's it's so cool, and it also was wild because all of a sudden we went to the guitar store and we went shopping. Yeah. Like, we went shopping. I'm not kidding. Like, yeah. He dropped like 25 grand at True Tone in in Santa Monica, and yeah. we bought all the orange gear. I'd never played orange before. I was just like, I want that orange. I bought my Rickenbacker. Yeah, it looks I cool. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he definitely, because I've never been a big pedal guy myself, to be honest, sure. like yeah. not really at all. So he was definitely had a lot to do with the weird sounds on that record. And did I have so and, many? photos of like when we were doing lament of just the fucking piles of of guitar pedals that yeah. he just had strewn yeah. about the floor that he would just be crawling all over plugging yeah. in and then like sl- he also like he also we were we recorded that record to tape and he was cutting tape like a motherfucker oh so much God. tape got cut up by him yeah. uh, and i think we were using like an a very very early version of pro tools to edit there was a uh-huh. dude in a little room that just was like editing, yeah. but Ross was cutting tape and it was the real, I'd never seen anything like it. Cause we recorded our early records to tape with Matt and, yeah. but I'd never seen like the things he was doing done before. So yeah, yeah. He, he's, it, he's a G for real. And so, <laughs> and so fucking present. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, so when, Blood Brothers stopped, and then uh, you ended up doing Jaguar Love. I just wanted to ask what it was like to all of a sudden get to be on Matador, like to have oh, those records. Yeah. That's like what a trip that is. I mean, that was that was definitely another milestone. Yeah, in terms, in terms of you know accomplishments as a, a young musician yeah. in the indie, indie rock music scene. Um, Jay Clark, who was playing drums in the band on that record, was in Pretty Girls Make Graves, and they were on Matador. So. You know, we had sent demos to Matador and Epitaph and I don't know, there was some other labels. Touch and Go was, oh, sure. was one we were talking. We talked to a few different labels, but in the end, we ended up go- going with Matador and they were awesome. And they took a chance on our band. And, you know, it was a weird band. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it didn't really like ring to a lot of people. Um, but putting a record on Matador was so cool. Going to the offices in Matador was so cool. Like oh, that whole experience was. Yeah. I don't know if I know this, who actually recorded the the LP they put out. Uh, did we do that one ourselves? We did it ourselves. Okay. Jay, Jay recorded it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always thought we that did it. Was- we, we recorded it at Jason McGurr's studio, the drummer from death cat for cutie. He had a studio at the time in Seattle. And oh wow yeah so he he let us do it for pretty cheap i think and we did it there <laughs> were those guys like i imagine this yeah like once you're like in especially at that the age you guys were coming up in like were all of those bands very like close with one another or not even close but like supportive of one another like you could have death cab at the same yeah. show as murder city devils yeah and- for sure i remember one show specifically where it was waxwing blood brothers uh death cab I'm like one other band. It was oh like a really weird, you know, we, you'd play with modest mouse and or like botch, like botch. Was, yeah, yeah. Botch, obviously. Yeah. It was very incestuous in Seattle. It didn't really matter that much. I mean, there were little sub scenes where like, yes, you, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have death cab play with certain types of hardcore bands probably, but yeah, we were kind of together. In sure. It. 
to sign. I remember there was that like Michigan Fest DVD or something like that. But I remember like hearing Chris Walla like mm-hmm. make a make a comment about Coalesce. And I was like, the idea of Chris Walla even knowing who Coalesce <laughs> is is melting my like, you know, 19 yeah. year old brain. But it's like, of course, that makes sense. Like they all yeah. kind of come up in the same world together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I mean, head, the Headwind City stuff is just like so so awesome it's like that is like definition super group i'm sure that had to have been such a thrill to like put together considering like your relationship with justin yeah um, i'm assuming with you know unfortunately the late gabe like mm-hmm. gabe serbian like and then you made friends with nick zinner probably through blood brothers yeah yeah, yeah as being on a show together at some point is that is yeah that, we played you know? we it was it was shortly after i think fever to tell was out and they were blowing up yeah, and I didn't know a lot about him. And we were on tour with Pretty Girls Make Graves in Europe, and I remember Nathan, the guitar player, telling me like, "Dude, you gotta listen to this band when we play with them. They have this song Maps that's like the most beautiful song I've ever heard." And we we were playing with them in Berlin, and I remember rolling up and getting off the bus, and Nick Zinner was actually there waiting and to say hello. And he introduced himself and we ended up hanging out. And of course they were unreal good. Yeah. Um, had an awesome time, exchanged emails. And then I think when I got home from the tour, like I emailed him, I was like, so good to meet you. And then we kind of just became pals yeah. from that point forward. Um, and then fast forward, Blood Brothers is opening for the IAS two nights in London with the Unicorns. And we were getting him, Jordan and I were getting drunk backstage and we were just talking about having a thrash band and we, yeah. were, well, we should have JP and Gabe play in it. And so we called them <laughs> <laughs> and Nick had the name, the band name picked out. He said, since he was a kid, he always wanted to have a punk band named Headwind City. So we pretty much conceived it that night because yeah. of, course, of course, JP and Gabe were like, hell yes. Yeah. So. And then, uh, how quickly did the music start? And then did you guys go record? We... We flew to San Diego and I think we wrote and recorded it all in one week. That first like 10 inch. Yeah. It was done very, very quickly. Yeah. Damn. That's uh, awesome. Like everything we had to do. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> just sure, due, sure. To, due to the nature of that band. And then of uh, course we didn't do anything. We played one show and did nothing for many, many years until we did the record on vice, which we did with Ross. Yeah. And then, <laughs> uh, I mean, I love the the obviously like the JP Ross friendship is also super fascinating to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, they really connected and they they've really, done some great work together. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, how was it for you returning returning to work with him? I mean, I had done stuff with him in the interim, so he he had called me. He was producing this rapper, Hiro to Hero. And he did a record with him and he brought me and Mark Gadgetar, Daniel Anderson from Idiot Pilot and Paul Hinojos from At The Drive-In. And we wrote all these songs and then Hyro rapped on them. And it was this kind of like weird punk rap hybrid record that had some cool songs on it. And so that was sort of my like first thing back doing with him because we had reconnected down the down the line. Yeah. And then I went and did guitar on another record with him. This this DJ his name's Craddy and John Theodore and I actually played. He John Theodore played drums and I played the guitar over all these like weird dubstep songs. Um, that was pretty cool. And also like John Theodore is one of my 
drumming heroes and, and a great guy. So I was, was like, hell yes, I'll come play on that. Like, yeah. I want the opportunity to play with him. Um, so Ross and I had like done stuff together at this point. Um, so he and I were like, I know how he is now. And this is, he had the house that he was doing stuff out of, which is where we did the Headwind City record. And sure. Um, so I knew what to expect, but it was funny because JP and G- and Jordan knew what to expect. Nick, I knew would be super cool, but I, I, I knew JP and Gabe would be a little like, what is up with this dude? <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is kind of what happened. There were moments where it was just, you could see like the, the faces change, like based right. on like a suggestion of Ross's or, you know, something of that nature. Um, yeah. By the time we were done with it, obviously everyone, you, you understand why he is the guy that you want to work with and why he's so successful and what he can do for you, you know? Totally. And obviously it, it left a, a great enough impression with, with, uh, with Justin to where he's now going yeah. back for, uh, Dead, Cross. Dead Cross stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so what was some, obviously you have a, you have a record by the time this is, this uh, episode comes out, the JR Slayer record will be, will be out and everything like that. When, uh-huh. um, cause you've been doing this now for, for a number of years. And yeah. I remember, I think I was at your, was your first show that show, uh, in Highland park at, yeah, at, the, um, at the hi-hat you did hi-hat, come to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, did, yeah. Um, and I remember even at that show, um, the music not being what I expected. Cause I think when the band started, was it kind of more electronic? Yeah. And then I, that show, I remember being like, this is more like bright eyes. at certain. Yeah. Point, almost. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. So talk to me about, talk to me about the evolution of this band okay. and, and how it got to where we are now. So, so the reason the first stuff was kind of electronic was because when I was still living in Seattle, I, for a brief period of time, uh, worked with Pat Monahan from the band Train, the singer of Train, and he Whoa. he yeah he had built a studio like a little home studio, and needed someone to engineer and help write demos and do things like that. And my name got thrown in the the pot for it, and we met and got along, and he hired me to come do it, which was really nerve wracking because I I had only ever recorded guitars and some drums and synthesizers in directly into logic. I didn't really know how to engineer that well. I mean, I understood it, but I basically just had to tell him he he asked me point blank, "Can you make a vocal sound good?" and I just said, "Yes." <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, totally." But I yeah. truly I was shaking in my boots cuz I, I I didn't know. Yeah. You know, and it's it's not it's not rocket science. Um yeah. so I knew that I would be able to figure it out, but I I truly just, I needed a job and it sounded really cool and he was super cool. And so he had this little house that we built out a little studio in and we started working and like working on demos for him and writing and, uh, in, in his off time, he allowed me to just go into the studio and, and fuck around. And I I wasn't doing anything else musically at the time. I wasn't in a touring band or anything. And so I just started writing music all the time. Um, and I, I ended up having just like a hard drive full of songs. And I, I was really into keyboards at the time and electronics. I think it's just because it was an easy way to build out a song, truly. Okay. 
because I was I started doing some music composition stuff for like commercials, and I thought that was a route I was going to go in because I I scored a commercial and made some money, and I was like, oh, this is cool. This might be something I'm going to do. And I was pitching a bunch of stuff, so I was also just writing and trying to like get better at recording. And but a lot of times I just ended up with cool songs, and so I I just had all of these electronic sounding stuff, and I was like, oh wow, maybe I'll start like practice singing, you know, and I'll start singing on it, and that stuff became the very very first jr slayer record which i think is only on my band camp and yeah it's very low-key i just was i needed to name it and i finally decided i was gonna make something and put it out and do it all myself and try to reconnect with music and so that was sort of the beginnings of it started in the train studio um, wow yeah it wasn't really an intentional like i have a project i want to do it was like oh i have all these songs that kind of like they're kind of like turning into something like maybe this is a cohesive thing. And yeah. Um, and I knew I always wanted to sing. I was always scared of it. Uh, cause I'm not a, the greatest singer. My brother was very good at singing. And so it just was, I was always the guitar player. You know what yeah. I mean? It was not a lead person. I play the guitar in the band. Um, sure. And so there's something intimidating about that, especially being in a, a somewhat successful band as a guitar player. It's kind of like, who wants to hear the guitar player sing in his solo project? Like, I, you know, there's a stigma with that, at least maybe in my mind. So I think I just you always convince yourself of it for sure. I understand. Yeah, that. I definitely just sort of shied away from it until eventually I just had nothing going on musically and was like, I'm gonna just, yeah, put put this out. And so that's kind of how that started. And then I put it out and then did nothing with it. I didn't had no ambitions of performing or doing anything. And I was living in LA. I moved to LA and I was living here and a friend of mine was just like, came over to play some guitar on some demos that I had. And now I was leaning more into like the acoustic kind of more bright eyes type traditional songwriting sort of stuff that I was doing. And he was like, you need to play these. Like, this is cool. And I was like, no, cause then you have to have a band and I don't, yeah. I don't want to have a band and I, I don't know how to have a band and I don't. And he's like, well, I booked you a show and it's at the hi-hat in Highland park. And that was that show that you came to because he just got together with Brit who Brit Witt, who was running the venue at that time and just told her, Hey, my friend has a band. Let's, let's give him a night. And yeah, that really pushed me into the like, Oh, okay. Like this is something like this friend obviously knew you well enough to know, like if I put a fire under Cody's ass, he's gonna, he'll have to, he'll <laughs> yeah, have to this yeah, out. yeah. His, his name's Andrew Martin. He, he was in the band moon honey. Uh-huh. Uh, and he, he currently plays in Palais Royale and I think with, with Barnes Courtney and a bunch of other people and he's, he's killing it right now. But yeah, he really did like put the fire under me to, to start doing it at least. And yeah. so, and so for me, I was like, okay, I've got this moniker and this place where I put all my music because I kind of like, I, I made a deal with myself that I was going to not worry about any type of monetary success around it because I just, that part of my life became very toxic, which is kind of why I stopped doing stuff in general, because I felt that it just, it informs things differently when you have to worry about those things. It's definitely a struggle for, and, and you know this because it's your livelihood and, yeah. you know, I think you inherently have to make decisions differently, which bleed into your art and you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I just, million so, percent. so the whole point of J.R. Slayer for me was to have an art outlet like I did when I was 15, where I just, these are the songs I want to make. Like, 
I, I could now record things on my own. So I was completely self-sufficient. So I was able to make my songs. I, I really like working in Photoshop. So I was like, I can make my art, my own artwork and, and sort of, you know, work on that side of the art that I love and I don't have to worry about it. And I can go on TuneCore and I can put my songs up and they can be on Spotify and I, yeah. can, I can sort of nurture this artist part of me because I, you know, I truly do love sharing music and performing. It's the thing I, I think that I'm best at in the entire world. Uh, even though I've, I've started doing other things and had to learn how to do other things. And it's, I just really wanted to reconnect with it. And so J.R. Slayer became that for it. And you also have this built-in foundation of your time playing in Waxwing, obviously, where it's like, you know how to write straightforward songs. You know, it's like, you're you're not just like the spasticky Blood Brothers guy. It's like, you, 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 you know how to write a straightforward just like good rock song yeah yeah so, and you know I'm, I, I'm obsessed with Elliot Smith and yeah and, th- and things like that so yeah I'm not not tied into just like hardcore and punk sure of course my life so yeah I remember that first show too uh going in I was expecting it to be the electronic stuff I didn't mm-hmm. know it was going to be that oh, wow and then so I was like well, this is not what I was expecting and then <laughs> really enjoying the show and then also there's something really sweet when you look around the room and you see it all of the people that are obviously there to support you because they're yeah I couldn't believe friends. it yeah, yeah I mean it, like it I'm looking amazing. to my left it was like fucking uh, I mean, like Tim Casher was there like uh-huh. all of these musician friends you've had all these years that yeah. obviously are just excited to support you and and rightfully so so now you have this new record that you did with Will Yip um, yeah Ben from Tiger Shop played drums Jason mm-hmm. Klein is is in it Jason Klein who obviously works at Fender which is awesome but like yeah yeah comes from hardcore as well I mean I used to play mm-hmm. with his band uh run with the hunted all the time when oh yeah when, when Touche was coming up mm-hmm. um so uh how long were you so it's coming out on Will's label which yeah, is memory Memories, music memory music right mm-hmm. and then or it's as we're talking it's out now so we can say it's oh, right. out oh, on yeah. memory music right right um how long were you actually in the studio with Will? Um, we were, we did two different sessions and it's funny because we started talking. I was living with Jason and he had mentioned a few times, like I should send your music to my buddy, Will. Like, I think he'd really like it. And it never did. And then one time we were hanging out and listening to music and cause he started playing bass in the band and it's like, I'm going to send it to him. So he sent him like an EP that I had. Yeah, and he just immediately hit him back. He's like, "Oh shit!" He texts me back. He really likes this, <laughs> and I remember being like, "Whoa!" Like, yeah, that's that's pretty rad. He's like, he wants to like Do bring something. us out and record us. I was like, okay, that's awesome. And this was pre-pandemic, and so at the time, I you know, I, I'm working on a reality television show, doing production, and grinding it out and he and I start talking and it's months and months to the point where I'm kind of like, Oh man, I don't, I don't know if this is going to happen. Like, yeah. You know, cause I already am Everything like, is up in the air. Of I'm ca- I'm cautious anyway with the project because I really can't let it become something toxic in my life. It's, it's, it's very important that it stays good. And if, you know, I, if I get too excited about something or expect something and it doesn't work out, I don't, I don't want it to become like a burden totally and so jason's just telling me he's like don't worry like don't worry this is you know like this is how this how it works and eventually we we planned it and i was i was out shooting in 
Pittsburgh, or I was going to be out, out south of Pittsburgh for a month in November of 2020, I want to say. And it, it, the timing worked out where right when I was done out there, he was ready. And so I rented a car and I drove to Philly and, or Conshohocken outside yeah. of Philly and stayed there for about two weeks. Jason flew out and we, he brought in Ben uh, and we like spent a week in the studio, basically kind of like piecing together the, the foundations for the songs. And it was really cool for me because he is very much more, at least in this interaction, a traditional producer artist sort of relationship where we were changing the songs and cutting them up immediately. And I gave him a song with no lyrics and he made up all the melodies and then I wrote lyrics to it. Um, Wow. Yeah. The song, the fade out, he wrote all of the melodies on that song pretty much. And I wrote lyrics to it. And so it was this really cool collaborative effort. Like I, I hadn't fully experienced before where, you know, he was like, "Uh, the bridge is too long or, Let's cut it out. And even wrote, I think he wrote the the guitar progression for the bridge on the song back when, because I, I didn't have a bridge for it. So sure. it was literally just these two parts repeating back and forth. And then he's like, I have this idea for a bridge. And he had already pre-recorded the guitar on it. I was oh my God. Like, is, I was like, this is awesome. You know, so yeah. it, really, it really truly was exciting for me because I've never, especially with this project where I just do everything. And up to this point, it's been I record it, I write it, I mix it. I have no nothing no, nothing to bounce ideas off of and so it was very cool like to be in the studio with with him and Jason and be like actually working on and making things stronger and also being open a, as an artist to allowing that into the space and for me understanding and respecting his craft and his trade and why why I'm there. It's like you don't want to you don't want to go work with Will and not let him help you make your song better. And I think that's a problem for a lot of artists, young artists. Yeah. At least, where you, you, you want that. You need yeah. that. You, you need to serve the song and the album. Totally. And so I, I definitely was very open to, to his recommendations and, and ideas. And he also taught me so much about singing and how to sing. And I just, I, I couldn't have had the, a better time. So we, yeah. we did, we we started it that winter and then we didn't get back together until the following winter. So it was a whole nother year. So even in that year, I was like, I don't know if we're going to ever finish this thing. Like, sure. You know what I mean? I was yeah. like, eh, we, I know he wants to. And, and fortunately, because I, I had a job, I didn't really need it. That's kind of the beautiful thing about it was neither of us needed it. There's no succeed. deadline. It needed, it needed, no de- yeah. Yeah. It was like, there's no deadline for it. It was kind of like, we were going to figure this out when the timing is right. Totally. Uh, and, and we did. And I, I was very patient and he was patient and we figured out when we could finish it. And so I went, Jason and I went back out the following Christmas and we finished it. We did all the tracking, um, the, the overdubs and the rest of the vocals. And my, my sister actually sings in the band as well, Brandy. And yeah. so when I was back in LA, I tracked her vocals and sent him to Will to mix in. And once he had anything, it was just like, okay, now when's he going to mix it? So it took a little bit of time to get it mixed. And, but of course, like when that, when that email came through or the first mixes, it was just like, holy shit. This sounds it's always so, so exciting. It's not so crazy. Yeah. So it's just like, I, it's definitely an accomplishment that, and, and 
for this project to have the opportunity to to go in and do something like this with him and and you know Tim from Memory and they're just so they're so rad. They you know they brought me out. We made a music video and yeah, I'm, su- I'm suddenly like doing all these things with this project where I I I feel like it's becoming full circle where I had. I started giving to it without the intention of getting these other things. And then they, now they're starting to happen. I'm like, Oh wow, actually maybe my like true intention really works. So I got to like make sure that I, I have to manage that. <laughs> right. I can hit you with the last question. When, <laughs> okay. uh, what, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Okay. Um, I feel like there's, I've probably got three, three, three answers to this. Okay. So it's like a two-parter and okay. then one, one, one part's kind of fun, but I think in the time where I wasn't really playing music, I started tour managing. Mm-hmm. Um, I went out and I, I got hired by uh, Paul Hinojos from at the drive-in to come be like a production assistant for at the drive-in at the time I had been a production assistant on the bachelor uh, TV show and he knew that and they needed someone. And so I jumped on it. I was like, yes, I would much rather come work in music. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a 35 year old guy as a production assistant on a TV show. <laughs> like I want to come like do music. And I immediately became their tour manager because their tour manager didn't get his visa. And I had no idea what I was doing. So it was a really, really hard process for me to learn how to like look at budgets. And this was and the reunion shows, obviously. This was part of the reunion, yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah, this yeah. was in like 20, I want to say 2018, 17 or yeah. 18. It was yeah, like yeah. A, in that that era. And he basically taught me how to do it and showed me all, all of the, the protocols and the logistics and I had to learn it because I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. I just played, yeah. I had just played guitar, you know? And so for me, I... But I started tour managing them and King Cruel and got pretty good at it. Like very, very confident, feeling good at it. And they both went off the road. And then I ended up going back and working at The Bachelor. So the last few years I've been working at Bachelor, uh, sort of learning a lot there. And that was a very, very big learning curve for me as well, even outside of music, because there's just so much. And I think it's it's I worked really hard to get good at it. And I've been able to apply those skills into my life in a way that I never had before. And so for me, that feels like, okay, like I'm doing something that I worked really hard to learn. Cause playing guitar was always easy for me. Like the music stuff was easy. And the way that this plays in for the second part of it, I think is I really worked hard at balancing my like work life and being an artist and doing my art. And so that part's, I feel like I've been sort of like, I'm living the dream of that right now. Although I did, I did, quit work and I'm putting more time into just playing music right now because I, you know, I, I, I really just, I have an opportunity with the stuff Will's doing and those guys where I just, I want to put some positive energy into it and, you know, give it, give it a chance to, to do something more because the, the production work is all encompassing and there's, you know, you, you have to like carve out little bits of time for art. So sure. In order, in order for me to, you know, even have this, two hours to sit and talk to you. I, I, it would be difficult if I were trying to balance the two. So yeah. I'm kind of taking a break from that and, and putting, putting time into this. So sure. Yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I think I've, it's been really hard for me that I'm working on is running. 
I've like taken up running over the last few years. Yeah. And I, I couldn't run a mile to save my life, like sort of at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And, you know, I'm training for my first half marathon at the moment. Awesome. Which is, which is in November. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, as you get older, it's, it's, it's sometimes can be a little tough on the knees, but uh, yeah, you, you find you got to find the right shoes. And the- so, yes, you do. Uh, and so far I I've had some good luck. I, I made some mistakes early on, um, that I had to learn from and yeah. I think I'm in a good spot now. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, dude, thanks for hanging out with me. This was, uh, yeah, this, was, this is really nice. I, I really enjoyed this. Hell yeah. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Cody for coming on. And thank you for listening. Reminder, there is a bonus episode available right now. If you head up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Cody answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, please do so. Also, leaving a positive rating and review means the world. And uh, I'll love you forever. I'll love you forever. All right. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.